This week's guest is Sean Sewell. Currently residing in Victoria, BC, Sean is a dedicated industry professional as he currently runs Clive's Classic Lounge in Victoria, as well as running several of his own consulting businesses. He has authored several books, and Sean is a strong advocate for the BC hospitality industry, and he also hosts several podcasts as well. Make sure you check out Sean's show, The Post Shift Podcast. And as always, all of the links to everything we talk about are in the show notes. It's another terrific conversation and one you're definitely going to enjoy. Welcome to the Industry Podcast, where we tell the stories of people in the service industry. Or more accurately, I guess we should say they tell the stories and we listen. I'm Kip. I'm your host. This is with me. With me, as always, is Dan, our engineer extraordinaire. What's happening? Uh, not much, just hanging out, being awesome as always. No change in my life. Uh, what about yourself? How are things with you? Uh, exciting news. I got my first poke today. Ooh. So, yep, yeah, I'm one vaccine away from being immune to everything. <laughs> well, another four months to go for that one. So. Yeah, so no problem. <laughs> another four months of hiding in my house. Well, perfect. <laughs> Hopefully yeah. the bars and restaurants will open by that point. So <laughs> Yeah, well, well. <laughs> never know. You never know. We can only hope. <laughs> we have a great guest, as always, for you on the Industry Podcast today. Sean Sue will be joining us in just a little moment. First and foremost, we should say thanks, as always, to Zach Hanna for all the great design work he does for the podcast at Zacana Design. He's just struck out on his own, actually. Quit the day job, and he is now full-time just Zacana Design. So oh, check him. him out, please. All right, enough of that. Let's bring in our guest. Uh, today we have joining us all the way from Victoria, BC, Sean Sewell. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, gents. Yeah, thanks for doing well, thanks it. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So uh, what's the situation in Victoria? We always got to start the show with uh, everybody's complaints. <laughs> well, we got uh, locked down for indoor dining April 1st, and that was supposed to go to April 19th. And obviously that got extended to past the long week, May long weekend. Oh, so wow. we've had a lot of that. We, I think, followed suit with Ontario. We locked down our borders and whatnot as well. And so because being on the island, we have a ferry service that brings over hundreds and hundreds of cars a day. So the BC Ferry Service has sort of been softly locked down, as, as softly as the government can lock it down without enforcing rules. So police are allowed to do checks and that sort of thing and say, hey, wow. are you coming to the island for essential travel and stuff? Especially coming into the May long weekend, there's going to be a lot of Alberta number plates hitting our, hitting our uh, fair little city. And we've been quite lucky in Vancouver on Vancouver Island for, our, for the, the cases, but we've been grouped together with the whole of the province which doesn't always help either so yeah no indoor dining which is difficult right now so we've just got the patios and luckily the weather for victoria is actually quite nice a little bit earlier this year but uh yeah i'm hoping as we get more vaccinations that after that may long weekend that early june that we'll be back to normal in abbreviated commas <laughs> Yeah, whatever normal ends up looking like, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and you're working at a place called Clive's Classic Lounge? That is correct. I ran Clive's from 2009 to 2013, and I left to open my own place and then start my own consultancy business. And then when COVID hit, all the main staff from Clive's who had been there since I left in 2013 all moved on to new endeavors being an opportunity to do so. And the hotel asked if I'd like to come back. And I was like, oh, do I have time for this? And my wife is like, you know, you'd be really upset if you didn't take back over and you went in six months six months later and everything was just horrible. You'd be so upset at yourself. So you should just man up and take it back. Right. Wow. So uh, it's a lot going on for you then. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, talk to us a little bit about what Clive's Classic Lounge is all about. Uh, I did check it out on... Um on, the, on, the, on your website there, it seems pretty like a kind of a classic place in town. Yeah, Clive's opened in 2009. It got a full renovation from a British-style pub in a nice little hotel in Victoria, one of the main five or six big hotels that are available in, in Victoria. I took over about six months after the relaunch and wanted to really turn it into a, like a European-style classic hotel lobby bar, a la like the Conort, the Savoy, that sort of thing. In 2011, we got a top four nomination at Tales of the Cocktail mm -hmm. as one of the best hotel bars in the world. And we went up against the Conort and the Savoy and the Artisan, I think, that year. And then we did it again in 2012. So we made the top four world's best hotels bars as well. And we're the only bar, I believe, still for Tales that's ever made the top four in any category in Canada. 
So oh, it's wow. a little tiny, yeah, it's this little tiny like 70 seat lobby bar in Victoria, a city of like 350,000 people. And we were going up against the Savoy and the Conaut and the Artisan and Clyde Common and stuff like that. So kind of crazy. And it, it, she, she's sort of, she's my baby. And that's the kind of reason why I took it back is like it, it defined a lot of my, the start of my career in a big way in Canada. And so I still think she's got some legs in her, even though she's going on 12 years old now. She's got some legs still going, even with a lot of, a lot, of a lot more competition in, in Canada. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm, I'm assuming you were responsible for the cocktail program there. Yeah, so I look after the cocktail program and train. We have a bit of a skeleton staff right now. Obviously, we're just a patio. We have an 18-seat patio. Sure. So we're running a pretty small, tight little staff. But the menu is kind of really classic. I wanted to sort of take it back from the ostentatious stylings that a lot of other bars in Victoria were doing. And so just really pull it back to what we defined us. And what is that? Really going back to that European roots of being that European classic cocktail bar. So a lot of more Amaro focus, like we have Negroni's on tap, Aperol Spritz is on tap, a local dry vermouth and tonic on tap. Um, and we recently, a local distillery uh, started kegging their gin and grapefruit juice. So we have Ooh. gin and juice on tap. Oh, nice. um, <laughs> so, oh, nice. And so, yeah, like sort of leaning back into that European style, really focusing on well-made classics and a little bit of more crazy sort of prep items and, and that sort of thing. So, but it's really difficult right now to be crazy and ostentatious in any cocktail program because you've got no out labor to you've got no dollars to spend on labor for prep so no. it's going to be a tight little program that still makes people go oh i really enjoy coming here yeah it's made it way more difficult like even here it's forget about even the labor part of it but even the when you're talking about the prep part of it you start prepping a bunch of stuff for cocktails for the weekend and then at least that was going in ontario our premier shuts us down two days later and now you've prepped all this stuff that you just got to yeah. throw out so you really got to be careful with what you're doing now. Yeah, and I, I think I plan everything to like the 75% mark. Like you, you, as an industry person, you're like, you always want to go 110%. Mm-hmm. But like just for New Year's Eve in particular, I didn't plan anything for New Year's Eve this year because eight hours, or tw- no, sorry, 24 hours before New Year's Eve opening, the government locked us down and said, you have to be shut by 8 p.m., Right. And so I was like, I'm not going to come in and deck like four hours worth of service. I'm not coming in decorating. Everybody can just wear red if they want. I'll put out a little feature menu. And then we we toasted uh, New Year's Eve every hour on the hour. I thought like, let's just cheers it. Let's try and break up this this time this time conundrum that we've got going on right now with repetitiveness. Let's cheers it every hour. So I turned the music down, got everybody's attention. Everybody got a glass of bubbles. And we counted downtown yeah. seconds every hour leading up to eight o'clock. That was the way to do it. I didn't know what to do. We were just like, people were like, what are you guys doing for New Year's for? I'm like, well, we have to close at fucking 9 p.m. I feel yeah. <laughs> yeah. Part of what I do on this show is use my keen investigative journalistic skills to deduce, in this case, that you didn't start your career in Canada. I'm assuming that you're, you are Australian? I was uh, born in England, grew up in Australia, and yeah. started my career in 1997 in uh, Brisbane. Ah, okay. So that's a crazy party area. Yes, yes. It's a very, it's a very unique. And I came from the country, so my first experience being a food and beverage person was like in a another another hotel. And I remember my first time getting asked for a cocktail was the like two Irish rugby teams were in house, and they were and they were and the hotel was Irish owned too. So it was like old school Irish pub rules where the staff would go home at one o'clock, and the mm-hmm. Irish. Irish rugby guys would just keep partying and drinking and then you just come in for breakfast and some of them would be still sitting on the deck at 6am in the morning when you're doing breakfast and there'd be a pile of money in a in a wine bucket on the on the bar top for what they drunk the night before oh man oh wow okay so you were mostly working in a pub setting then and what what when did you make the move to Canada uh, 2006, I made the okay. move over here for a girl originally, as Always most Australian boys do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first job when you came to Victoria? I actually got a job not knowing what a franchise restaurant was. I actually got a job serving at a franchise restaurant at a Moxie's of all places. Oh, yeah. In Australia, we don't have the we don't have these sort of franchise restaurants that just don't exist. And so I was like, oh, it's Moxie's. This is a nice place. This is fantastic. Put my resume and got the job. And I was there for three years. 
And I eventually became the assistant general manager and bar manager there. But yeah, Moxie's was my first job. And then a couple, and this was literally three days after I landed in Canada, I got the job. And then after that, I was just like, oh, there's a lot of cool independent restaurants in Victoria that I could have gone and worked at. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, did you figure, did you you find it, did you learn anything specifically from working at like a franchise type spot that helped you later? Oh, huge, huge. I, I I was having a conversation with someone just the other day about like corporate restaurants and they were like de- demonizing corporate restaurants a little bit. I'm like, if you did like a year and a half, two years in a corporate restaurant, it would just change the way you look at your profit or loss statements, your inventory, your systems, like the manuals are this thick. Yeah. And a lot of people read like 50% of it, but they've still got a manual to make all your staff accountable. You know, like there's right. a reason, there's a reason why there's 150 kegs across Canada, you know, yeah. so for me, systems wise, and just having that sort of foundation of systems changed the way I consulted from like from from then onwards, and just mm-hmm. changed the way I did everything. So did you go to a more independent style spot after you left there? Straight to Clive's. Oh, right. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. So now are you bartending at both spots? Um, I didn't bartend too much at Moxie's. Like when I in Canada, in Australia, I, I was working at high end cocktail bars most of my career, and and won a couple of accolades and got a few things in Australia. So when I came to Canada, I realized there wasn't a lot of cocktail culture. Like even in Toronto, two thousand six, it was few and far between. Venues were were doing any sort of like classic cocktails and stuff like that. So I got into wine, which then led to Moxie's. But I always was trying to get back to my cocktail bug and trying to get back to to where I was in uh in australia and then a friend of mine opened up a place just before i took over clive's and he opened up the very first cocktail bar in victoria called solomon's and i started bartending there as well as managing the other place and then when clive's came up i was like oh this is just gonna be this is it this is the this is the the fire that's gonna sort of set it set it ablaze so getting back behind that and starting cocktail stuff and pushing that culture was a long and arduous and very patient journey, but it was one that paid off like tenfold. Uh, how do you mean? Like what, what was difficult about it? Well, just when you start off a culture in a, in a city that is just starting with craft beer, let alone like you start talking about cocktails at nine, mm-hmm. 10, $11. I, I, I laugh these days when, when the youngsters get frustrated with stuff not happening to, happening to them in three to six months. And I'm like, dude, like I, I worked Saturday nights at Clive's by myself, 75 seat place. I'd work by myself with a chef in the back. I'd ring out $120 in sales, walk with 25 bucks in my pocket. Mm-hmm. And that was like for 18 months. So <sighs> brand new cocktail. And it's just a grind like every Friday. And, and this is when Twitter was really big. Instagram wasn't around. Facebook was only three or four years old. And like I would text people, go, hey, hey, come on in. Like let's taste through Amaro's. I'll do flights for you. I'll do something. And so it was like an 18-month process of just trying to get people – attached to cocktails, attached to what we do outside the franchise restaurants, the Cactus Club Bellinis and that sort of thing. And then slowly but surely, there was a a point where we did a little cocktail festival in Victoria called Art of the Cocktail. And it just, that was what it, it, like overnight, it went from me by myself on a Saturday ringing out 120 bucks to having to hire three staff members and doing $4,000 in sales in a space of like six to six to eight weeks. It was just mental that it just hit the macro and then it blew up. But it was really like a lot of questioning of my own personal uh, direction when it came to <laughs> 18 months of like, dude, what am I doing? Like, is this even sticking? Like, and I try and look back now and I'm like, man, I must've just been super patient because I don't think I could be that patient now going back, looking back. Right. But but yeah, it was it was just a lot of patience. And I think any cocktail culture, especially in the smaller markets, you need to have that sort of patience and know that it's eventually going to stick. A little bit easier these days. Everybody's got smartphones. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think there's such a small time frame and small period of time between like minimal internet at home to supercomputer in your pocket. You know, mm-hmm. like there's there's a it's only a, it's less than a decade. Yeah. You know, so now cocktail culture sticks pretty much wherever. Red Deer is cocktail bars. Like <laughs> the Yukon has cocktail bars. It sticks pretty easy these days. But in 2009, it was a little bit of more of a treacherous direction. No doubt. Uh, so it sounds kind of like when I hear you describe this, it's like reminds me of like when you hear about a band that's described as an overnight success, but then you realize, yeah, we've been fucking playing in shitty bars for 15 years overnight against my ass, but it's kind of like that a little bit. What, besides obviously patience, what are 
like what's the secret to getting a community that's not quite there or hasn't really seen it before in into like a craft culture cocktail culture like when you're not only introducing them to a whole new style of drinking but also pricing we did a couple of different things education was a big one and I, I have to say, like, the education we put on at Clive's in the very beginning, I mean, and I'm sure you guys know this as well, like, brand ambassadors come into town, you do a big industry brand ambassador luncheon or a seminar and stuff. We would do that again at night for general public for free. Mm-hmm. Cap it at 20 people, put it up on Facebook as a, an event. And so you'd had Angus Winchester come in, and every, of course, the industry would be, like, clamoring to come and see Angus Winchester. But then you do the exact same seminar the next that, that night with the general public. And all of a sudden, the general consumers gain the same education that you're giving a lot of bartenders. And we did a couple of initiatives like Homage Cocktail Friday. We did that for about 18 months, two years, where we'd reach out to famous bars all over the world and say, hey, we want to replicate your cocktail menu for one night at our bar. Can you send us five cocktails? And so I've done Clover Club and like in 2010, 2011, like Clover Club and the Artisan and all these bars all over the world. And then that, then those people at those bars are like, what is, who is this bar at Clive's in Victoria, BC? And why are they like homaging our cocktails? So you start building that and then people don't have to travel. Like back then, like we could travel, but like a lot of people could come and have drinks the way they would have at the RTs and all, well, as close as we could get at Clover Club or stuff like that. And so we had a couple of different initiatives, but I really think the education and treating the general consumer exactly how you would treat a young bartender was probably the biggest success that we could have and making sure it was free. Like Mm -hmm. you'd have people finish up the seminar, then they come into the lounge and they would drink and eat after the event and so, yeah, I think education, and I think sometimes we keep the general consumer at an arm's length and just dribble down the information that we want them to hear. And I was like, nah, open the doors, open the floodgates, get everybody in, like get everybody in, let, let's give them the exact same education. We've had Jacob Breyers talk about cocktails, Angus Winchester, John Kakuru, Philip Duff. Like we've had a whole bunch, just whole swath of really great, amazing people that like we look at as peers and mentors in our industry come through Victoria, BC of all places. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time it was just me asking. Like I just Facebook them and go, hey, I met you at Tales or I met you at this event. Would you be interested in coming to Victoria, BC if I get a sponsor? Like we, we hosted Dead Rabbit up here. We had Sean and Jack come up from Dead Rabbit and do a Dead Rabbit pop-up in Victoria, BC. Wow. Like this does that it doesn't make sense and really in, in all honesty. But I think that's the key to it is education. Yeah, and asking is you're right. Like a lot of times uh, you'd be amazed what you can get. Just people just don't don't realize the power of just simply just asking. Like the worst someone say can say is no. Exactly, and, right? No, it's not a big deal. <laughs> no, exactly. It's almost what you were expecting in the first place. The yeah. other thing I think is important too is what I've discovered is not dumbing it down. Like treat your guests like they're intelligent people. And like I think a, a lot of places that are trying to break in and in doing something new, they make the mistake of sort of dumbing down their product or or their atmosphere or whatever it is to try and make it easier for the consumer to digest. But let's just give these people credit, right? It's a little bit Wizard of Aussie. Like there's the smoke and mirrors behind the curtain and it's just an old dude pushing pedals and pulling strings. Like nothing we do is super crazy and complicated. And once you get that sort of brand loyalty, you can't beat it. Like I remember at one stage, we were the largest sellers of Fernet Brunker in the country. We had Fernet Brunker and Housemaid Cola on tap. And the general consumer was coming and drinking Fernandito's on tap. Right. <laughs> and even now, like even now in big cities, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal and stuff like that, you'd never have that sort of loyalty to a new product or a new thing. So yeah, the, I think pulling a pup behind the curtain and showing that what we do is time consuming, yes, but not that difficult. Yeah. And it not be like the other thing is a lot of times people are afraid, oh, if I let the secret out of the bag, then is my is my job as <laughs> as important anymore? I'm, I might kind of pushing myself out of my own job by letting this rabbit out of the hat. But really, it's no, like, it, the way to look at it is the opposite. Like, by bringing them in, they're more likely to come back and learn more. 100%. Mm-hmm. 100%. So talk to me about the cocktail culture in Brisbane. We'll back up just a little bit here because uh, that's sort of where you first got into it. What's the what's the scene like there? Was was it all, Did it already exist or did, were you? do you feel like you had something to do with creating it there as well? 
I think that it's sort of always existed. The hard thing, again, is that connectivity through internet and through smartphones is always a little bit different. So I've still got like some like 500 books at home in Australia in storage that will never come to Canada that I bought over time. Starting in 1996, it was still like there wasn't any sort of cocktail culture. Literally, all we were doing was just grabbing books from the local bookstores and doodling and trying to find recipes that would work and all this sort of stuff. And you'd pass a story over to one person, they'd pass a recipe to you. And the thing with Australia is that we're all super competitive, which I think Australia has one of the best cocktail cultures in the world. One, we have a lot of UK expats who bring a lot of knowledge from London and the big markets in the UK and a lot of European expats now, but we're always super competitive, but we also want to nurture each other as well. So we want to beat you but we're going to do it in a nice way that afterwards we're going to have a beer together. Mm -hmm. So this competitiveness is always like, oh, here's a recipe I found for a Manhattan or a story I found for a cocktail. Here you go. But you know that they're going to be like trying to push it further further envelope down there. So yeah, like by the time I left in 2006, we had a really great cocktail culture. I would say 2002, three, four was when Brisbane started getting the traction. And it was always overshadowed a little bit by Sydney because Sydney is such a massive city and a little bit by Melbourne. So, but Brisbane had a really great cocktail scene. There's some fantastic cocktail bars that still exist today. Like that opened in 2002 and they're going on 20 years old and they're still the same, the same bar, the same name, the same owners as Mm. they were in 2002. Uh, That's something interesting to talk about. How does how do you feel like that happens for like, you know, the bars that tend to really last for like decades are all, tend to almost be sort of the corner pub type places <laughs> because they've got like their regulars that they draw in that neighborhood that are going to keep coming back. And that's what keeps the lights on. So if you're trying to do something sort of original in a craft cocktail way or, or, or in any other way in an original type setting for a bar, how do you last? I think sticking with a mission statement from the very get go. You know, that that was one thing like we were talking about Clive's earlier and why I took back over is like the mission statement is always to be a, a hospitable place that welcomes hotel guests and tourists as much as it re- re- like welcomes the, the the locals. And like 80, I would say 85% of our business is locals, not mm-hmm. hotel guests. We're not a hotel touristy sort of spot. Mm-hmm. And so we've built this culture of inclusiveness for regardless if you want to drink a beer or that sort of thing. So I think a lot of bars when they open, they, they open with some sort of mantra and then after a year or 18 months, that that new honeymoon phase starts to fade. And they're like, oh, I have to change everything to get that honeymoon phase back. Instead of just sort of looking and going, okay, well, what am I doing that someone else isn't doing? And, and, not, and taking your blinders off and looking around the market. Sometimes it's as simple as a new cocktail bar opened and they're going through their honeymoon phase and they've taken yeah. 15% of your clients. But I think sticking to your mission statement is the easiest and the hardest thing you can do in our industry. Because it's the easiest thing to do to sit down and go, hey, this is my mission statement. This is what we're about. This is what we do. But then to keep that mission statement when the place is empty in February, because it's February and it's freaking snowing outside and there's a a, a bus strike going on. um, (laughs) That's where the hardest thing is going on. Because that's where you're like, I got to stick to my mission statement. You can tweak it and mold it to as you get going. But I think the key is, is that that mission statement, that initial where am I, what am I going to be and how am I going to be? is key. And then that feeds into everything. You know, like I hate finding restaurants and bars showing up early because it's quiet. If your closing time is 10 PM, your closing time is 10 PM period. Yeah. Oh, fuck, you know? that's the worst. Yeah. yeah uh, so, if there's any way to kill your crowd, it's to start messing with your closing hours. Um, yeah. But I, I do agree with what you said. Like two of the, two of the hardest things to have in this industry, I think are patience and the self-confidence to believe in yourself and know that and know that you've got you're doing a good thing and having the patience to ride it out through the tough times or wait for it to come in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I I used to be really bad at it until I started working. I opened up a a 35 year old Mexican restaurant here in Victoria that burnt down and we rebuilt it. And the owner had owned like he'd been in the industry for like 45, 50 years and amazing guy. And we'd have quiet nights and I'd come into the office the next one like, bugger shit, bugger blah. And he'd be like, dude, relax. I'm like, yeah, but like it was quiet last night. He's like, yeah, it's Victoria. You know, like we didn't have a cruise ship in last night or the weather was weird. And he's just like, it's Victoria. And I'm like, man, if you've owned like five major restaurants in Victoria and you've owned this one for 35 years, you reinvested to reopen it. And you still have that sort of mentality. I'm like, I got to replicate that way more than like yeah. freaking out about every single night that we have a quiet night. 
Oh, fuck. One thing I learned is if you start, when, when I owned my first bar, I used to sweat every single day that we were open, like checking the numbers and being like, oh my God, it was this day, this today, and it was that last week and whatever. And I, well, the one thing I discovered is you kind of need to look at it in like a three-month clip. Mm-hmm. Like, were my sales about the same three, these three months to the next three months? And if they are, then you're fine. Because if you start sweating every night, I mean, there's a million reasons why you might be slow on a given evening, right? So, and there's a million reasons why you'd be busy as well. Exactly. <laughs> and so much of it's completely unfucking predictable. <laughs> exactly. Like, how many times have we all walked into a bar and be like, "Oh, I can tell it's going to be a good one tonight. All the conditions are right. It's a beautiful Saturday <laughs> night. People are out on the streets." And then you open the bar and you're just like picking your ass all night and yeah. you can have the exact opposite happen as well it's crazy exactly and we always have reasons for both yeah like oh yeah like it was busy because of this oh we did that on that social media post oh it was quiet because of this because that yeah. place was open my new favorite one is well yeah but what time did you do the social media post yeah. because, oh. was it at 3 p.m because or noon because those are the times it's supposed to be at. i'm like, i don't fucking know i got up and i Posted something because I'm supposed to. <laughs> the algorithm doesn't work like that, regardless of what people think. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> so at some point, you get... Well, at what point do you start to think, okay, well, I should maybe give, give a go to like my own business, consulting bars and restaurants, and take a step away from behind the bar? Uh, it would have been around 2013, and I've I've worked I've uh, I've worked behind the bar and bartended in various capacities over those years. But 2013, I I went to open up a, a venue called Little Jumbo, which was a concept I'd had from before I came to Canada. So I, I'd had the concept for like seven years, and it's based around Harry Johnson's bar in Soho, in New York. He had a bar called Little Jumbo. Um, I'm a massive Harry Johnson fan. Second cocktail book, really the bartenders guide to everything in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so I had this concept for Little Jumbo and I, I got partners and I was I was young, I was 32 and I got partners and, you know, you my wife always calls it like the the game, rushing to wedding. Like when you get engaged, you rush to get to the wedding. When you get married, you rush to get kids. When you have kids, you rush to get a house. And so I put my blinders on a little bit and I don't regret opening up Little Jumbo because it did end horribly. It ended up so poorly, um, and it, but the place still exists to this, this day. It has had an absolute stable of great bartenders that have gone through that venue. But I, I, I put my blinders on and I, I compromised a few things in shareholder agreements. And you know, like you know, this one they'll never get rid of me. Why would they get rid of me? I came up with the concept. I'm the I'm the leader. I'm the driving force behind this whole brand. Why in the mm-hmm. world would they ever get rid of me? They definitely figured out a way to get rid of me. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, people can be very creative. Very. <laughs> Very creative. So that that sort of that lasted just over a year, uh, 14, 15 months before my partner and I had a really bad falling out. Yeah, I've been um, there. And, Don't worry. Yeah, it all bounced back. <laughs> and I, I've told this story a million times, but that was when I was like, okay, so how do I? What am I going to do to start building legacy in Victoria? Because I I built a team at Clive's, and I moved on to Little Jumbo. Some of my team moved from Clive's to Little Jumbo. We built a really great team and and brand at at Little Jumbo. We did really well in our first year at Tails and a few other things, but. I was like 2015, 2014, 2015 was like, okay, you know, you're 35 years old. You've got a, a massive network of really great bartenders. How do you help all the bartenders, not just the bartenders inside your venue? And so that's when I started consulting and doing training at multiple venues. And Victoria is still very small. Even now, I still, it's it's still a very big, uh, I wouldn't say struggle, but a, a hurdle for myself to to get consulting work here in, in Victoria. Um, but that was where my thing was, is like, what's, where's my legacy going to be? My legacy is not a venue. My legacy is, uh, apart from Clive's, but my legacy is, mm. is more about like how many bartenders can I help and how can I mentor a massive generation of bartenders who are going to go on and open and run 10 to 15 venues in Victoria. Okay. So I have a couple questions about this and I'll try not to forget them both. But <laughs> the, the first one is what, well, I, like you mentioned how it's been a struggle getting the consulting business open. Every time we've had a few people on the show who have started their own consulting business. And for me, I'm always trying to get my head around it. Like, for instance, I'm the guy who went and opened my own bar. So I coming from the bar industry and having done it already, I figure I pretty much know what I'm trying to do. Right. Uh, so and I feel like I can train my staff in how to do it and how to execute that plan. How do you like when you're pitching yourself to new places, like, what's your sort of pitch to get them to hire you as opposed to just doing it themselves? 
This is always the most difficult thing. And I'm not sure if this is the answer that you usually get from people is like, I'm not much of a talker. I know that we're talking a ton now, but I'm not (laughs) much of a, like a pitch man. I don't, I'm not a big sales guy. If I've got three foot of mahogany between me and a a customer, I can sell you ice and say Mm -hmm. it's from France and you'll love it. Mm -hmm. But for myself, my personal services, I'm a bit more of a wind me up and let me go sort of person. For me, it's about trying to find the deficiencies that the owner may not even admit to themselves. And I think that's usually the big thing is that there's always a deficiency that everybody has in Mm -hmm. some facet of the business. It may be hiring people and maybe do you have like, I've got really high turnover. Okay. Do you have job descriptions and like how, what everybody's job down to your dishwasher? Does the dishwasher know exactly what he or she is supposed to be doing when they're in that dish pit? And they're like, oh, no, we don't have that. We just sort of hire and fire. And I'm like, okay, so you're not onboarding or offboarding at all very well. So let's let's fix that area. And so for me, it's not about come in bull in a china shop and do everything, although my company is set up to do that. It's about really sitting down and getting to know the, the owner and figuring out where they feel like their issues are. And nine times out of 10, most owners, as you said, like you've got that self-confidence as an owner, won't admit that. So usually it's an hour and a half, two hour conversation before they start really open. I was like, I don't really understand my P&Ls. Like I don't understand where my inventory is at. Why is my inventory high? And then you start getting like two beers later or two drinks later, like it starts really opening up. And then you can start filling those holes. So for me, my role is not necessarily coming in and like scrapping it all the work that you may have done or already have in your head, it's more about compartmentalizing it and mm-hmm. actually making it efficient. Going back to what we were talking about with Moxies, those systems, you know, like a lot of small independents just never think about doing an employee manual or job descriptions or stuff like that. I was like, you can't complain about high turnover if you don't have job descriptions and what people know what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Yeah, and I think you're right in so many, especially in this industry, what one of the biggest things that leads to high turnover at a bar or restaurant is the fact that people are, like, there's not, you haven't made it easy for the person in whatever position they're in. Mm-hmm. And so then they get frustrated, and then they're like, this place is run like a piece of shit, and then they want to move on, right? And exactly. and that's sort of, all oh, those, those guys don't know what they're doing. And in a way, they're right, because you haven't told them what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the thing is like I sometimes I get hired for the all or nothing like when I opened up venues in Singapore in 2019 like they they hired me for everything like mm-hmm. I landed and I thought I was just going to be doing beverage program food and beverage development and I was like nope you need HR you need hiring firing we need to sort out this we need to sort out that and so those three venues in Singapore that I did in six months was everything top to bottom. Mm-hmm. So how did you actually land that gig if you don't mind me asking because that's <laughs> that kinda- was through friends of friends okay so like, yeah but that's i mean that's amazing experience to oh, fly over to singapore and help them open three different restaurants ridiculous experience yeah like and living, what was, living in living in Singapore for six months yeah and what was it like like to go to a place and be like and have them not really know ed- anything like you were probably expecting like you said to, oh i'm just going to help them with the food and beverage or whatever but then landing there and finding out oh no they need like a from the ground up development here I always go into everything open-minded. Mm-hmm. I think if you try, like, <laughs> the funny thing, when you tr- cross over a consultancy, we seem to think that it's going to be more like formal business and everything is going to be really organized and stuff like that. But nothing we do in the restaurant industry is really organized. Like you go, like you said, you go in on Friday night, you're ready, you've, you've pleated your pants, you've polished your shoes, you've got all your tools set up, and then it's a gong show because yeah. someone smashes a plate of glasses or something like that. So like, why would you go into consulting the same way? So I remember I landed... Because I was, I it was weird because it was really quick turnaround too. It was like a space of two weeks, so I got hit up just before I flew out to Portugal for the Lisbon Bar Show. I did a Zoom call in Portugal. I did the contract up in Portugal. I flew home. I had a week at home, and then I flew out for two and a half months to Singapore for my first stint in Singapore. So I landed at Sing- in Singapore at midnight, one o'clock. Checked into my hotel, like a a long stay hotel on Kiong Sak, and. I was at work at 8.30 the next morning. So like six hours after I landed in Singapore, on the job site, pulled back the door and it's just a, it's a gong show. Like it's just dirt floors. And I posted on my Instagram, dirt floors, like no structure in place. And we are supposed to be open in six weeks. Like (laughs) supposed to be open in six weeks. And I'm like this, like, and coming from North America, you're just like, this is not going to happen. This is just, nope, nope. I'm, I'm already on the back foot here. But then being in Southeast Asia, like you have 15, 20 workmen hit the site and in a day 
bar frames up, floors concreted, half the place is painted, and you're just no like no inspections necessary. We haven't even started on like all that stuff. Like coming from Canada, I was like, you can't do that in Canada. They're like, oh, it's fine here. I'm like, okay, okay, cool, cool. If everybody, if no one's gonna say anything, there's, there's there's more inspections for smoking outside than there is for like liquor inspectors and fire inspectors and uh, stuff like that. So yeah, so we landed and we had to go into menu development, and because we had such a truncated timetable, it was really interesting. The, the how quickly we got it done and opened. We opened up, I think, five days late or six days late overall. They'd already hired a lot of staff. And as you said, going to a different country, I remember the first time I was doing training and I didn't hire any of the staff the first time around. And I sat down, I was like, okay, guys, like I got 40 bottles of wine because they wanted a really big wine list. I'm like, so who drinks wine here? And no hands out of the tent. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm like, okay who has drunk wine here and like two hands go up. So I had to like go for my training all the way back to zero and explain oh, what, why, what, why, why it was before we got into this like massive 50, 60 bottle wine list. It was oh, mental. That's crazy. Yeah. Like I can't even, I can't even imagine that's uh, it's, but it must've been a crazy experience and like so obviously super helpful to do, to move forward in your consulting business. Cause now you've pretty much seen, any possible challenge. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely up there. And if it wasn't for COVID, I was I, I was booked to open up two venues in Myanmar um, last year and a venue in Vietnam oh, as wow. well before before like June, July of 2020. So I was going to be in Myanmar for like three months to open a ven- to open up a couple of venues. And well, so things, that are a little, things are a little sticky there right now, from what I understand. Yeah, just, so just, you just, just a smidge. You might have dodged a bullet, literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so this kind of segues into what I, the other question that I wanted to ask you about consulting. Tell me exactly what you think goes into building a good team. What do you need? What, like, what, are, what goes into making a good bar service team? And then what would you... What advice would you offer someone trying to get into bartending? What's the most important and valuable resources or knowledge they need? I think as a manager and owner, and I've been talking about this a lot lately because a lot of people complain about staffing and stuff like that. As no, a manager, it's all we do. It's all we do. <laughs> as a manager and owner, you have to really look inwards. And I believe in transparency and honesty with everything. So sitting down with your team and saying, okay, this is our per head spend goal. This is our cover count goal. Like this is what our top line revenue goal is. And being open, like how many times we, we've we talked to service and bartenders when a restaurant's closed down and they're, they're like, oh, I didn't even know that was going to happen. We were so busy all the time because the owners weren't doing very well. So I think starting off with like, I'm going to build a, 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 a team based on transparency, honesty and respect. And then you start going, okay, well, that's where the job descriptions come into play. Like how does your, who's your head bartender or bar manager, who are the two people underneath him, how did, or her, how does that all work out below that? And then once you get a sort of a flow chart of how you should be hiring with job descriptions for each, it becomes really easy. I find in our industry from a HR point of view, we tend to try and fit square pegs into round holes because we think at the time they're going to, they're going to, they'll, they'll, they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll evolve. They'll adapt to what we're doing instead of just trying to find the square peg, to st- uh, the, the round peg to start with. Mm-hmm. And I think having a set job description, uh, how many times we have a bar manager come up to us and go, Oh, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, well, if I just, cause I didn't have a job description. I said, monthly bar inventory and now you're training your bar manager the first month in on how to do inventory so having yourself structured and set out and then you can really start like i have a i have a three-stage hiring process where you have to ask a whole bunch of questions and that's part of the interview process and then you do an online little survey monkey thing and that gets slid into your, your process and so before as soon as i get my your resume i have a cover sheet i go through and give scores to your to what experience you have and what like for Clive's, we need to have bar smarts or a W set or something like that. So you have some baselines and then you get an interview. And then when you go through an interview, you got another sheet. And then before you finish your interview, you got a, a, um, a simple survey monkey, like what red wine would you pair with steak as a multiple choice question? What's your favorite cocktail and why? What goes into a Manhattan? And it's bourbon, sweet vermouth, bitters, rye, sweet vermouth, bitters, dry vermouth, all this sort of stuff. And then at the very end of all that, I tabulate everything and you're and numbers don't lie in my books. Like people can fudge their resumes, people can say this, people can do that. But numbers at the end of it all, when you've truncated it all down, they don't lie. You're either hireable or not hireable. Mm. And so I've got stacks of resumes like this that didn't make the first cut. 
But then I have people who you would never think if you looked at their resume and looked at where they've been and what they've done. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, they haven't got any cocktail experience, but they've done their W set two and they've done their bar smarts. Like, okay, this person's just been looking for a chance. Right. And so I think that's when it comes to it is actually putting a system to the whole hiring process like any other industry does. Like mm-hmm. this is no, not... Yeah, right. Like, just, yeah, I've been reading a book about that just recently and like how... And it's essentially talking about analytics and bringing it into business models, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like almost like a Moneyball style. Yes. Uh, yeah, a Moneyball style of analytics. And and I was like, wow. But as I'm reading it, I'm like, how does this apply to the fucking nutso industry that I'm in, though? And and I think you're right. It's just like, of course it does. It's just nobody ever tries to do it. And that's the thing is everybody's – we also go by like our seat of our pants. Like I got a good feeling about that person. I'm like, you don't have a good feeling about that person three months later when you have to fire them or they've quit or they've like gone off to your competitors and stuff like that. Like it sort of builds this. And then I think when you start breaking down into the numbers, you can start really having a completely blank slate for inclusivity and diversity as well. Because you start hiring outside your click, you start like mm-hmm. tapping into markets that are completely outside the normal that norm that you used to. Because how many times do we hire people? Because such and such down the way said, "Oh, that's a good person to hire," and you hire them on the spot without going through resumes, without going through anything. And so I think this sort of methodology of almost putting just a number to people instead of names and and places and stuff like that automatically gives you this sort of like clean slate and hiring the best person for the the like I said round peg for a round hole. Mm-hmm. You want to get into analytics, like you probably exactly what you said, 80% of the people get hired in the services are exactly because so-and-so knows so-and-so. And, and then they're it's like, oh, no, that'll be a good fit. It's my buddy. He's good. And then you get stuck with a bunch of people who are all friends and they all want to take the same days off. <laughs> <laughs> That's the greatest fun. <laughs> we, would, we all want to book off the, the Sunday before the long weekend because yeah. we're going away camping. Awesome. Right. Fantastic, yeah. guys. Thank we, you all. We all got, no, but you don't understand. We all got tickets to the same concert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I, I do. I love your analytical approach to it, and I think that that's something that's much needed to be injected into our industry, and nobody really talks about. So it's interesting to me. Where does personality come into the equation when you're building a staff? I usually put it down in my the face to face interview, mm-hmm. and it, it comes into questions just like, "Where do you like to drink? What's your favorite cocktail at that bar? What do you know about like my my first question always is like, "What do you know about Clive's?" You know, Clive's been around for 12 years. This came about because I was running a bar program at a 40-year-old family Italian restaurant in Victoria here. And I'd be like, what do you know about Pags? If you don't know anything about Pagliacci's, you're pretty much screwed for the rest of the interview. Right. (laughs) If if you couldn't take the time to Google like Pagliacci's or Google Clive's, then you're not really putting the effort in. And then those are sort of questions like, oh, what do you like to, what are your aspirations for the next two to five years? What do you want to do? And these sort of questions are more the personality derivative ones, post resume and before that test. So it sits right in the middle of like, where's your knowledge base? What do you like to drink? Do you love Negronis at Little Jumbo? Or do you like Negronis at, like, at Manhattan at Veneto or something like that? But if there's a reason why and what cocktail you like and that sort of thing, that's when their personalities start really coming in. To be honest, personality is always t- tough because you don't see real personality until people are like yeah. five chit five chits deep on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. You know, like we don't, we can't do it in Canada. We used to be able to do it in Australia, four hour training shifts where people would come in for four hours and be thrown behind the bar on a Friday. If you swam, great. If you sunk, well, too bad. But I don't think you can ever really gauge someone's personality and how they click with the dynamics of your team. My team's really tight. We all work really well together. We can bang out busy nights with not even breaking a sweat. So I've been very mindful of like, how does this fit into the dynamic of the team? Are you going to come in like a bull in a china shop or are you going to have some respect and just learn and, and that sort of thing? So it's those questions of like, what do you like doing? Where do you see yourself? How do you like, how do you stay motivated? How do you deal with people if it's a bad night? Those sort of things are good little tells for mm-hmm. the personality. But until you, like you, like I said, until you're five chits deep or like a lineup at the door with like the the chef railing on the bell, you're not going to see the true personality of anybody. No, and the key, <laughs> the key is just weeding out the criers and the ragers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the two ends of the spectrum. And then, and then hoping for the middle bit. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, what's what's the thing that a bartender needs the most if he's coming in? A bartender or a server, like what, what qualities are you looking for or what's the first thing that you're looking to teach them if they're starting out? For me, I, I like a little humility. I, I and not in an egotistical way. Like 
if you're a young bartender, you could have worked at one of the best cocktail bars or that sort of thing. But there's always a house style to everywhere, whether it be a restaurant or a bar. Just take a week. Just just ask questions. Don't input like it sounds really bad, but just sort of like just listen and absorb. And mm-hmm. I think if if we if we did that and did a, a full week's worth of training and you just sort of absorbed and then at the end of the week you sit down and go, Hey, how is your week's training? Let's chat. And then you can sort of get some two-way there. It's the same as consulting. Like I don't I don't rush in anymore. I sort of stop, I go in and sit for a drink, I sit at the bar, I, I watch and I absorb, and then I can make some judgment calls. But yeah, I think there's a lot of great bartenders out there. But again, with the connectivity we have with social media and YouTube and stuff like that, there's a lot of bartenders who are very talented and very knowledgeable, but they've never actually put that into practice because they've been cocktail fanatics watching YouTube videos or reading Gary Reagan's books and Dale DeGroff's books. They come into a bull and a shine shop into a bar and you're like, just just take a breath, bud. Just take a breath. Like, we'll get there. Don't worry. Yeah. That's become a huge problem. I think this whole, like the fact that everybody can learn how to bartend through YouTube or someone's book or whatever, and everybody can have their own Instagram page where they make beautiful cocktails or whatever, but that does not make you someone who's able to sit, like stand behind a bar when you're three deep on a Saturday night. Like it's just not the same skill set. And do the same cocktails over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. I find that's the biggest thing is like, oh, I didn't get to be creative tonight. I'm like, yes, you were. You made the old fashioned perfect every time for 150 times. Yeah. Every single one that went out, I watched it. Garnish was on point. Taste was on point. That is creativity. Yeah. Like culture isn't built. Like, I always have a rule of thumb. Like, Creativity doesn't build culture. Consistency does. Yeah. Also, it's not all about you, shit stick. Somebody already perfected that cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> Just make it. <laughs> uh, okay, I want to get into a little bit about uh, you because you also have your own podcast. So t- uh, tell us about your podcast and what it's all about. So the post shift, like post shift, it's sort of uh, like as we do is we have a post shift rant at the end of the night. We sit there and do cash outs, have a mm-hmm. beer and and talk about the night or talk about the week. Post shift came, sort of came about, I can't even remember why I started it. It was sort of a cathartic thing to start off with. And so Tuesdays, I do it twice a week. So Tuesdays is my usual, like my rant or my piece of advice bit. And then Fridays I interview guests. And so I, I popped off 250, t- tomorrow's 252. Two, Jesus. Um, and so Jim Meehan. We're not even going to be friends by the time we hit. <laughs> <laughs> you'll just be in separate rooms, and you'll just show up at three separate doors, three separate doors, and leave three separate doors, yeah. and you'll just get a, you'll just get an email going. Here's your file. Exactly. So I've been I've been fortunate enough that I've got a lot of good friends uh, in the industry. So like I reached out to Jim Meehan for my 250th. Dal DeGroff was my 200th. Jeffrey Morgenthaler was my 100th. I've got Salvatore Calabresi coming on fairly shortly. Audrey Saunders and Robert Hess. But I've been sort of sort of focusing into the entrepreneurship side of things and, and my journey through hospitality entrepreneurship because I think entrepreneurship is already hard, but being a hospitality entrepreneurship entrepreneurs harder. So I've been mm-hmm. getting to to chat to a lot of brand owners and bartenders come brand owners and stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's, it's sort of same thing as what you guys are trying to do is, is sort of tell the story of the people behind the industry because sometimes I think again, social media gives us a very gleany, very shiny version of life, especially hospitality in hospitality entrepreneurship or hospitality business, you know, like, oh, you're at this party because you're such and such and you're with that person and you get to go to that opening of that restaurant. And you're like, yeah, but I'm still in my office at 7.30 in the morning, like grinding out case studies. Like I'm working on a PowerPoint presentation for a case study for my e-com business. And yeah. so I, I try and keep it as raw and true as possible so that pe- like young bartenders can actually feel that they're not crazy because I think a lot of young bartenders get into it seeing that their peers and mentors and mental health and everything is a whole different conversation but being awesome again the junket trips and the book deals and the speaking engagements and all this sort of stuff but you're like yeah but I got to fly to I go do a 25 hour flight and then half an hour later after I land I have to go speak in front of 200 people Mm -hmm. I'm like yes it's really glamorous but you're absolutely bagged. And so giving some realism to the actual industry when you get to a certain level, I think is what was what my big goal was. Oh, nice. That sounds super interesting. So people should check it out. It's called uh, Post Shift? Post Shift Podcast. Post Shift Podcast. And talk to us a little bit about some of these books you've co-authored as well. <laughs> so I've, I wrote Cocktail Culture in 2013. 
that was with my head bartender at the time, Nate Cordell. That was really just about cocktail culture for Victoria and sort of showcasing the bartenders. For me, all my books have always been about showcasing other people other than like my recipes. And so Great Northern Cocktails came about in 20, 2019. We launched, I got the deal in 2018. And I went to, I want to say 12 different publishers and they all turned me down because it was a cocktail book about Canadian bartenders. So showcasing Canadian bartenders, their story, their recipes. And I went to 12 different publishers and they were like, yeah, no, this is not going to sell. No one in North America, no one in the US really cares about Canadian bartenders. So the US market's not going to really, it's not going to sing in the US market. Um, And I finally found a publisher in the UK that was like, yeah, done, we'll do it. And so I had about a year and a bit to write it and wrangling 125, 150 bartenders from across Canada to get me bios and recipes and whatnot was an absolute nightmare. I'm going to do it again because I've got the the second edition of that coming out next year. <laughs> and then I have another book coming out next next month. Yeah, next month called BC Spirits. So it's all about BC distilleries and cocktails using BC spirits. And so we're doing a, a cocktail book for that. So that'll be out in uh, late May. And then you were telling us before the uh, podcast started, when we were just kind of sort of catching up, the, that you also are doing some sort of show with BC Spirit. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do a daily tasting show. And so really, uh, that's just to expose more people to the craft distilling movement. It doesn't have the same sort of, I won't say government support, but tourism support as like the craft breweries and the the wineries. There's obviously a lot less distilleries. Hard alcohol is still sort of seen as not a taboo, but like it's not like you can go to, you can do a wine tasting and spit out wine and go to the next winery and drive and stuff like that. But distilleries, that's a little bit more difficult, especially when they're a little bit further apart. So I've been really passionate about craft spirits in BC and you can see behind me, it's just a huge amount of spirits and whiskey and gin and everything so yeah i do a, a daily show and i'm at 350 one of those today wow. as of today i'm at 351 of those shows as well which is a ton of work as you know is doing producing and stuff like yeah the taping is only two to three minutes but then it's the the video and then it's posting to instagram posting to facebook pasting to youtube writing a blog post editing i mean i don't fucking know anything about that dan does everything but he tells me it's difficult <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Ceretti is the true um, hero behind this podcast. I just sit here, drink, and talk to the people. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sean, it sounds like you got a shit ton on the go. Well, this pandemic must have been almost a blessing. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. I'm a little nervous about when I do start traveling, how I'm going to balance everything because I'm pretty full on now. Like I launched a new company during COVID as well, which is doing which has done quite well. So we, we've stayed busy. I've got about 16 different projects on the go right now on top of like Clive's and the books and whatnot. So I'm, I'm staying busy enough, but I'm nervous about when we actually start flying and traveling again. And I'm like, oh right. man, me sitting in an airport for three hours and then flying for eight hours. Like I'm literally going to be on my laptop all the time on my on the plane, which is really difficult for me because I'm a relatively large gentleman yeah. at six foot at six yeah. foot five. And so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to traveling again, but I'm also not looking forward to balancing out the workload yeah. when traveling well, again starts. You, uh, you seem like the kind of guy who's going to figure that stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely seem to have a lot on the go, so we really appreciate you taking some time out to talk to oh, us. Oh, thank today. you so much, guys. It was super great, uh, super interesting conversation. We wish you all the best, and we'll be uh, putting links to all of Sean's many projects into our show notes, or as many as we can fit in. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get them all in there. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Sean. Great talking to you, man. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Okay. Cheers. Have a great evening. 